Will you pray with me, please? And so, Lord, in these next few minutes, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we um, are beginning a new series of sermons this fall, and the title of the series is on the front of your bulletin cover. It's also here on the screen. Embracing God's Vision, Our Values, Practices, and Obstacles. And every word in that title has significance and meaning. It's not knowing God's vision. It's not remembering God's vision. It's not thinking about God's vision. It's embracing God's vision. It's owning God's vision. It's living and breathing and and understanding this is essential to who we are as a body of believers. And the only way it's essential to us as a body of believers is to have each of us individually embrace God's vision. And we have to understand then, to be able to do that, what our values are, what our practices are, how we are going to do this, and then some of the things, it's important to identify some of the things that get in our way. And so over the course of the next nine or ten weeks, those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about. Beginning today, we're talking about um, this whole idea of values. How many of you uh, in this room have ever read the book, The Purpose Driven Life? This is going to be, see, this is going to get lots of hands raised. This is one of the top-selling books ever in the country, uh, both secular and Christian. All audiences have read it because Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback Church hit a nerve. And the nerve was, we all want to believe that there's some purpose in us being here. You know, what is my purpose? Why am I here? This is a universal question. It's not just a question for Christians. It's a question for every human being who's living. What is my purpose? Why am I here? And he helped us understand that God does have a purpose for us in life. Um, uh, Not only did people read this book individually, a lot of churches read it as part of a program. I mean, even, you know, way up north in Traverse City where we have very little civilization, we read this book together as a congregation. We had words and everything, pictures. It was great. But... Uh, understanding that we have a purpose is not only important for us as individuals, it's also important for institutions, you know, like the church. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? What does God want us to do? The answer to those questions is the very thing that's going to make us effective in embracing the vision that God has given to us. And so we have a vision in this church that we, um, prayerfully discerned over a one-year time with people from all over our congregation representing very many different uh, demographics of age and experience and uh, relationship to this church. And we've talked about this before, but it's important to go back to our vision all the time because uh, church leaders tell us that, that vision leaks. If you don't remind a congregation, if we don't go back and think, yeah, what is our purpose and what is our vision? Why are we here? About every 60 or 90 days, it kind of leaks out of the system and we begin to wander. When we begin to wander, uh, we lose our focus. And when we lose our focus, we don't accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. We're just kind of all over the map. So the vision that God has given our congregation is that we want to be God's source of shining light and living water in the western suburbs, drawing people to know Jesus, becoming like Jesus, 
and serving as Jesus. This is the vision that God has given to us. It's the vision that we're trying to live out every day. And it's important for those of us who've been here for a long time to revisit this vision and remind ourselves why we're here and what we're doing. And for those of you who might be new here and trying to figure out why do they do this and what are they trying to accomplish and what is the purpose, hopefully you'll understand that as well. So in their book, Built to Last, um, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras said that businesses and organizations who are successful choose to be intolerant. Now, that, that, that's, kind of, you know, that's kind of like counterintuitive, right? You would think if you want to be successful, you want people to like you, you would tolerate people. You would love people. You would embrace everybody. But what they mean by intolerant is that you've chosen a particular vision, you have certain values, and you don't tolerate anything in your business outside of that. Because when you do, you lose your focus, you lose your purpose, you lose your direction, and pretty soon you're not accomplishing everything. You know, organizations, businesses, institutions, churches that tolerate everything usually accomplish nothing. When we're talking about tolerance, we're not talking about God's grace and love and mercy. Those things are tolerant. We're talking about the values and the purpose of a particular organization. So in their book, they say that clear values serve to attract and repel the right customers who want to do business with an organization that reflects what they value and not just in some cause-related theoretical sense. People are attracted to somebody who understands what they're doing, what they're trying to accomplish, and are laser-focused on that. It attracts the right kind of people. Now, not all churches are the same. You would say, well, shouldn't every church have the same values? Shouldn't every church have the same vision? Every, every church trying to accomplish the same thing? And the answer would be no. If the answer was yes, why do we have so many of us, right? I mean, and we've got all sorts of different denominations and doctrinal stances and so on. And that's usually how we think about the difference. Well, the difference between us and the Lutherans over here behind us is, well, we have a different theological stance and there are different doctrines that we believe in. You know, and then there's another church around the corner and there's Presbyterians and there's Baptists and they believe in, you know, believer's baptism and we baptize babies and oh my goodness, yeah, that, that's the difference. Well, th those are some of the differences. But even all churches in the same denomination are not the same. You know, if that was the case, why would we have to have another one right around the corner, another one over in Lombard, another one in, in Western Springs, and another Christian Reformed Church in, in Wheaton? You know, if they were all the same, couldn't we all just kind of be together? Every church is different and unique, and churches are different and unique for the same reason that we are different and unique. It's in our DNA. Our DNA is different and unique. No two people are alike. This is the kind of thing that allows criminals to be caught more often than they ever used to be is DNA analysis. And the DNA of a church is planted at the very inception of the church. And around this grow values. And sometimes we lose track and lose sight of that. And so it's important, we're told then, to identify our core values. Now there's all sorts of values that you can have in life. In fact, we went through this exercise a couple years ago as a staff and elected leaders and so on. I think probably on, on a sheet of paper we listed all the values that we could think of and there were like 200 that we had. Things that were valuable to us, things that we thought were important, you know. Um, showing up on Sunday mornings is important. That's a value we have, right? Uh, the Bible is important, so that's a value that we have. But there's a difference between the kinds of values that are there and what are the core values and the core values of an organization, what set it apart. So, like, there are some things that we have that are aspirational values. These are things that are important to us. We'd say they're important, but we're really not there yet. We're, we're aspiring to be there. 
Now, one of them in, in, in this congregation might be evangelism. We would like to really aspire to be more evangelistic, and, and, we, and we, would, we, we should be having new people baptized every Sunday up here, and there should be hundreds of people in the front accepting Christ every Sunday. And that's, that, would be, that would be probably what Jesus would want us to do, but that's aspirational for us. We're not quite there yet. There are other um, values that are permission to play values. These are values that a lot of organizations like you, like you have, and it's kind of like just your permission to get into the game. Um, and so uh, a permission to play value would be, well, you know, we really believe in the Bible. Well, that's a good value, but a lot of churches have that value. In fact, all churches should have that value. It's part of a permission to play thing, right? A church is in the same denomination. If they all have that same value, then it's not a core value of any individual church. So if we have the value, well, we really value Christian education. Well, so do most Christian Reformed churches in the United States value Christian education for their kids. So that's permission to play in our denomination. We all kind of embrace it together. But it's not necessarily a core value of this congregation. Important value, but it's permission to play. And there are accidental values. Things that are valuable to a congregation that you didn't set out to say, well, this is what we're really going to focus on, but this is who we are, right? This is part, this has become a value here. Now, we have interesting per, uh, per, uh, accidental values in this church. Uh, one of them, I think, is that 78% of the people in this congregation have college degrees or higher. Now, when our church was founded in the 1920s, they didn't say, you know what, we're going to go after that segment of the population. We're going to go after everybody who has a college education or higher, and if we get 78%, we'll be really successful. I mean, 78% is twice as high as DuPage County has of those kind of people. We're freaks of nature here, okay? I mean, it comes from the fact that your pastors and staff leaders are highly intelligent, highly degreed people. And a couple of other qualities are modesty and humility. Those also are accidental values for us. They're not our core values. So you go, well, what are our core values then? I mean, what, what, what's at the core of who we are? Well, over the course of discernment, we have discovered that our core values are attraction, which we'll talk about today. Children are a core value of who we are. Generosity is one of our core values, and excellence is one of our core values. I, I can't resist this, okay? So this is like embarrassingly funny, which is pretty much my life story. But... Um, in the first service, excellence was spelled wrong. Do you find that ironic? <laughs> but we did it to see if anybody's paying attention to hold us accountable, to see if we were being excellent. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. So in the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about these values and our core values and how you even get there. So the first one is attraction. What does that mean? You know, we're trying to be attractive. Well, why would you try to be attractive? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, just two verses, 13 and 14, we see that Jesus' ministry was based on attracting crowds of people, right? When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, just think about this a second, okay? Jesus had been teaching for a long time. He'd gotten some news that he really didn't like hearing. He was upset. With he wanted to go off by himself. So he got in a boat by himself, privately. It was like Jesus didn't take public boats. He took a private boat. And he went to be to a solitary place where he could be all by himself. He needed to get away and be by himself. 
intentionally trying to go away and be by himself. And he was such an attractive teacher that he couldn't even get to a solitary place where nobody ever hardly went before there was a crowd of people waiting for him to show up. Jesus couldn't be alone. He, he, he managed on a few occasions, but it usually was late at night or early in the morning where he snuck up into the mountains where no one else would bother to go. These people followed Jesus. He was always attracting a crowd. A, a little bit later in this passage, if you keep reading, this is the introduction to the passage where Jesus teaches and heals. It was told here that he healed the sick. That's what Matthew says he did. And then he fed 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 men, not including the women and children, actually, it says. So it probably more than 5,000. The next day, when Jesus woke up, there was a crowd of people there again, right? I mean, he had fed them dinner. How about breakfast? That's what they were there for. That's why Jesus didn't like to do miracles, because people were attracted to the miracles. They came because there were crowds came for the miracles. But Jesus wasn't all about miracles. But he couldn't help but attract a crowd. I mean, if you read um, the opening uh, uh, introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that there was such a large crowd of people that came to listen to Jesus teach that day that he had to get in the boat and get offshore a little bit because there was just no room for him to even stand. It was like, ugh, these people are all... I, mean, I need to get away a little bit. He had to give himself some distance because he automatically attracted a crowd. A couple of weeks ago when we talked about people who were meeting Jesus, we talked about this character named Jairus who showed up trying to find Jesus so he could get his daughter healed who was dying in another town. And the crowd was so thick that Jairus had trouble even finding Jesus. And then when he did find Jesus, Jesus agreed to go with him to help his daughter. But the crowd was so thick that Jesus couldn't even get out about without some woman grabbing his robe and being healed. And then he couldn't identify even who it was. There was such a large crowd of people. Jesus attracted crowds of people just by the nature of who he was. He attracted them because of his teaching. He attracted them because of his healing. He attracted them because of his personality. Jesus drew people to himself. He attracted others. It was part of his ministry. I mean, this is an evangelism model that we're familiar with, right? What did Billy Graham do? When he began his ministry in the 50s, he went into town and he set up a tent and they did all the sorts of advertising to attract people to come. Well, if you set up a, a tent in Los Angeles, people are going to come just out of curiosity. Hey, what kind of freak show is going to go out of here today? You know? So people came. And then when he started these crusades in all sorts of stadiums, people came trying to attract a crowd, trying to attract a crowd, trying to attract a crowd. It's a model of ministry that others have followed as well. Willow Creek's uh, focus on Sunday morning for a long time was to attract non-believers into their sanctuary to get a chance to present to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was meant to attract a crowd. It's an attraction model. It's a model of ministry. So in the 1920s, there's a woman who lived east of here in Bellwood named Catherine Tessman. And Catherine Tessman was attracted to Jesus. Now, Catherine Tessman, as some of you know, but others have no idea, is the founder of Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, the first pastor we ever had. And she is where the DNA of this congregation was established. And over the course of the next four weeks, as we think about these core values, we're, we're going to understand how this DNA was planted in the life of this congregation. 
And so let's just take a couple of minutes and listen to this segment of her story. Uh, Pay attention to the screens if you would. Who knows why I did it? Why, when my husband stumbled home that night, shook me awake, and told me he'd lost me in a card game, I just rubbed my pregnant belly and nodded. I suppose I figured Albert Tessman, the man who won me, couldn't possibly be worse than Louis Weringa, the man who'd gambled me away. Besides, where else did I have to go? So I left and moved my two children and my pregnant self in with Albert Tessman, a man who wouldn't be my husband for several years. It was a mess. We were a mess. And yet, somewhere in the midst of all that, another man began wooing me. I'd heard stories of this man, this Jesus, but never gave him much thought. Until, that is, his voice of love, of peace, of forgiveness, grew stronger in my mind and in my heart until I actually saw his hand reaching toward me, offering me a new life, a better way. And once again, I ask, who knows why I did it? Why this Jesus compelled me so? But once again, I went along. And while life didn't become perfect, while all my problems didn't disappear, I did notice Jesus at work turning my mess, even my relationship with a man who won me in a poker game, into a thing of beauty. At least that's what I saw the day Albert came to follow Jesus too. And then, on the day we married, I saw the beauty once again when Albert didn't cast me aside or even call me crazy when I said I'd been called to preach the good news of this Jesus who'd called us to him. And again, I saw that beauty when I told Albert I wanted our home to be a church, a sanctuary for the desperate and the lost. And when Albert climbed a rickety ladder to hoist a cross on top of our bungalow, marking it as a place where we all were welcome, where anyone could come, their messes in tow, to meet this man, Jesus, who so mysteriously miraculously called us to him. So for those of you who who maybe were hearing the story for the first time and kind of go, did she say she was lost in a poker game? That's exactly what she said. Now, what she also was alluding to is that she had had some children out of wedlock, and then she got married, and then she married a guy who was, who was a gambler who lost her in a poker game, and another guy won. I mean, what's worse, the guy who lost her or the guy who took her because he won her? And talk about your life being a mess. Now, someone suggested that one of the core values of our church should be poker nights because we have this <laughs> as our foundation now. But this woman met Jesus. This woman whose life was such a mess met Jesus who wooed her in, who attracted her. 
with his unconditional love, his unmerited favor, his grace, his mercy. And what she decided was that she wanted to have other people be attracted to meet the same Jesus. And the way to do it was to attract other people in, to, to get people to meet him. And, and how would she do that? And so she decided to, to, to convince her husband to, to, to start a church and they couldn't afford a building. So when you can't afford a building, you just invite everybody into your house. And the way that you attract them in is to hoist a steeple on top of your house. Eventually you, you make a cutout. You can see that they had made this cutout and, and built this place where the steeple would fit. And then you put a sign on the front and, and you call it the, the Bellwood Gospel Chapel. So that people know that this is the place where you can meet Jesus. And this is a place where you can be attracted to someone who will accept you and know you the same way that Catherine Tessman had been attracted and known by this loving and gracious God. The DNA of this church has this core value of attraction. Trying to attract, or as we sometimes say, draw people into this relationship with Jesus Christ. Mrs. Tessman did it with the architecture of her home, did she not? She put a steeple on top of her house and put a sign on the front. And in the architecture of this building, in the location of this building, on one of the busiest roads in DuPage County where thousands and thousands of cars go by every day, we have an architecture and a location that says, Welcome Come, this is a place where you can come in and you can meet Jesus. We want to attract you into this person's life and a relationship that will transform who you are and what you are about. There are different models for ministry. There are missional models where people are sent from a location, sent from a congregation, not necessarily around the world, but out into their neighborhoods and have an influence and, and minister in institutions and organizations to try to create a relationship with Jesus. And there's another model where people say, hey, come to our campus and we'll introduce you to Jesus. Now, it sounds like the attraction model would be easier than the mission model, but that's only in church people's minds. I mean, if you're here on a regular basis, you've got no, I can pull into that parking lot. I know where to park. I know where to go. I know who I'm going to see. I know my way around the building. It's not that intimidating to me. But if you're not a church person and you drive by on Roosevelt Road and you see not welcoming arms but a gigantic fortress, coming inside is a little intimidating. (laughs) But if they take the risk to come inside because they've been attracted, because maybe they've heard or maybe they said, maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll go there. I don't know. It's the Holy Spirit. They don't know it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit drawing them in. It's attracting them in here. So the question is, once they get inside, do they find this place attractive? I mean, is the worship compelling? Is it relevant to their lives? Does anybody introduce themselves to them? Do they go in a corner and stand by themselves because everybody else is talking to people that they know or their family members, whatever the case that we do? You know, we, we can attract all the people we want to attract, but if they don't find us attractive, guess what? They're not going to come back. And we have 
in particular certain ministries that we utilize that focus on attracting people from the community and to come to this place so they can tell others that this is a safe, okay place to come. We have little lambs and coffee break and mops which have many more people from the community who are registered to be a part of their ministries than people who are from our church. It's great to come to a little lambs program at Christmas time or at the end of the season and to see parents and grandparents who are from the community and help them know and understand that their children have had a safe and secure environment here for an entire semester, for an entire year, and we have all sorts of things to do that for them, and we're glad that they met Jesus. And maybe you can meet Jesus too here, mom and dad or grandpa and grandma. You're invited to do so. But there's no hard sell, but we just want to invite you in. And when you intend coffee break, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in biblical theology. Some of the women who have come don't even have a Bible. We've got to help them with that. And that's a great thing. <laughs> to start on an even field. To understand that you don't have to know anything to get started. People find that attractive because they feel like they're behind. You know, mothers of preschoolers. You know, they need a support group. They need places that can help them understand. They need to meet other moms in their you know, kind of demographic. Attracting them to this place is one thing, but do they find us attractive once they're here? I mean, you know, in, in keeping with Mrs. Testament's model, our Sunday morning worship needs to be attractive. Not just to people who are here all the time, but maybe more importantly to people who don't come here very often at all. And understanding what will draw them into the presence of Jesus Christ. Because attraction is one of our core values, we need to be continually thinking together as a congregation about how can we be more attractive. Is there a group out there that we're missing? Is there a segment of the population that could really use a chance to meet Jesus and could we provide that for them? How could we attract them? Now the important thing I think to remember is that Mrs. Tessman wasn't attracted to a church. She wasn't attracted to a program. She wasn't coming because there were lots of people there. She didn't come because they had a beautiful building on Roosevelt Road. She was attracted to the person of Jesus. And all those things are tools. Programs aren't bad things. Events aren't bad things. A beautiful building is not a bad thing. Great music and worship is not a bad thing. Those are all wonderful things that God uses as tools to help people meet the most important person they'll ever meet in their life, right? Mrs. Tessman said, I met Jesus there, and that changed my life. I never believed that anyone from my situation Think about this in the 20s. An unwed mother who didn't go to church, who had one husband who was a gambler, who lost her in a poker game, and then she remarried somebody. I mean, this is in the 20s. I mean, you got to think about culturally where this is at. She was an outcast in her society. The chance of her having a relationship with anybody was beyond her imagination until she met Jesus and that changed everything. What we need to remember as a church is at the core of who we are 
is the necessity to hold up Jesus as the most attractive person they could ever meet in their life. Not to hold up our congregation as that attractive, not to hold up our building, not to hold up our program. Everything. All that stuff is good, but the most attractive thing we have is the person of Jesus. And the world is dying to meet someone who is filled with love and grace and mercy. Will you pray with me, please? And so, Lord, as your people, we first of all thank you for welcoming us, for accepting us, for embracing us, for holding us, for attracting us to you. And help us to be the kind of people that will attract others to the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So one of the changes in our worship service that we have made is to um, kind of follow a, uh, a long-time Reformed theological tradition of uh, doing lots of things in worship, including singing and praying and hearing the word first, and then responding to God with gratitude. And one of the ways we respond to God with gratitude is through our tithes and our offerings. It's symbolic. And so we've kind of moved the offertory. You thought I forgot, right? <laughs> hey, cool, we're skipping the offering this week. It's really theological. It's to respond to God and to say thanks in a tangible way with our tithes and offerings. And while we do this, are we singing along? Greg, Doug? Okay, we're gonna, you can sing or not sing, but the offering is still going to take place.